episode of Big Mama's House podcast has been brought to you ad-free by our fans. If you would like to learn more about supporting this podcast and this topic, visit www.patreon.com forward slash Big Mama's House. Hi there. Welcome back to Big Mama's House. This is season one, episode five. When schools overshare, cope a law in your child's privacy. This is part one of a two-part series related to federal guidelines and student data privacy. This episode covers a very basic understanding of how schools are supposed to protect your child, including protecting access to your child's data and identity via digital tools and how schools may be making mistakes while trying to adjust to e-learning environments. During this episode, we will hear from a good friend of mine, Amanda Clapp. She's in-house legal counsel at neola.com. She's going to explain how these federal regulations impact your child, their data, and school districts. The idea for this episode began a few weeks ago when I noticed that some schools, in an effort to engage their school community during the stay-at-home order, were asking their students, some under 13 years old, to post photos of themselves on social media, which kids are not even allowed to have under 13 years old, and then to make it worse, some of these school-led Spirit Week social media campaigns were connected to hashtags, which identify the name of the school. So effectively connecting that child to that school, to that social media account, to those classmates, to those parents, absolutely not okay. When I saw this, I popped like a zit a little, and I posted a kind of a rant on my Facebook page, see the liner notes for the link for that, and soon after, a principal of a school where I had already presented a few times reached out to me with his confession. He had done some of the very things I mentioned in my Facebook rant, and in his own daily video morning announcements to his students, he had even publicly celebrated specific kids' birthdays. Now, this principal is a total rock star even before this. He saw the errors he had made, corrected them, and then he invited me to appear on his video announcements for a pseudo self-public flogging. The link of this is also in the liner notes. Yes, this episode is about schools getting it wrong, specifically in terms of K-12 schools using social media and digital tools and making mistakes along the way. But before we get there, I'd like to offer you a small peek into what I see when I present at K-12 schools. Traveling across the country to present to your child's school is exhausting and not necessarily for the reasons you might expect. Yes, there are the planes, trains, and automobiles. The praying to the god of introverts that the seat next to me stays open instead of occupied by that chatty combine salesman from Ottawa I mean, I never knew how many combines are sold annually in this country and every other country, but I do now. Yes, that's exhausting, but that's still not the most challenging part of the work I do. When visiting a school, I usually present for five or six hours straight. I do whatever I can in every single presentation to make sure that every student in that audience hears something new and then actually acts on what they've learned by changing something in their digital life, getting rid of an app, whatever it may be. And I'm good at making both of those things happen. I mean, I try. I jump up and down like an idiot, like a little organ grinder's monkey. But it's still not the most exhausting or challenging part of the job. It's what happens between student sessions. It happens in the transition of one group of students arriving for their session 
while the ones leaving are feverishly deleting compromising photos off their phones while trying not to fall down the bleachers. It happens so quietly that even if you were right there with me, you might not notice. I always know when it's coming, and I'll replay those moments and those conversations in my mind for months and sometimes for years. It might be a shy single kid or a couple of loud ones, but always hovering off to the side, not knowing whether to ask the question they want to ask. These stories and these kids both live in some in-between place, playing a sort of psychological double dutch to see if I'll acknowledge them first so they won't have to make the first move or begin the conversation that they know needs to happen. When I spot their hesitant approach, my heart sinks just a little bit, but I smile and dare them to shock me. Come on over here, baby. You know there's nothing you're going to tell me that I haven't heard before. I am unshockable. That isn't even close to true. I am sometimes shocked and often heartbroken. The middle school boy who tells me that he's been sex trafficked, rented out to traffickers by a family member. The ninth grade girl who knows her stepfather has hidden cameras in the bathroom. The high school kid who received a video threat from a predator in which the predator had recorded himself shooting someone else in the head just to prove to the student that his threats were real. All of these things actually happened. I was there. So what happens immediately after that? Well, besides doing whatever I can to remain unshocked, the next step is some combination of getting the full story in detail, then calling over the school guidance counselor, who are the absolute unsung heroes of every single school. I have a quick two-minute triage with the guidance counselor who's been in the room with me the entire day. Then the guidance counselor puts that child's immediate concern on the top of a never-ending school pile of both immediate and long-term mental health referrals, social services referrals, law enforcement calls, rounding out just a little piece of the, quote, guidance counselor job description, which would be implausibly comical if it weren't real. And all of that doesn't even cover the kids who lead complicated lives regardless of digital risks who depend on their school for two meals each day because dinner at home isn't always guaranteed. Some schools give kids a spare set of clean clothes while the dirt-caked clothes they arrived in are washed for them at school. I presented a school where every child had the luggage chair around the building from class to class because there weren't enough chairs for each classroom. That same school didn't have enough paper, like just paper for the copier, for tests, for handouts, paper. And for those of you who are shocked by what I just said, honestly, wake up. If you were to rip off just one leg of those ridiculous $100 yoga pants you're wearing at this moment, that $50 in one pant leg could feed one of these kids dinner for a month. This is happening in our schools and in our country. The next time you buy a $30 bottle of organic cruelty-free shampoo at some obnoxiously overpriced grocery store, remember the other cruelty that's happening every single day, silently and conveniently out of your view. And now you can't say you didn't know because I just told you. Schools are expected and forced to deal with a pile of issues not of their own making and not meant to be solved in an educational environment, at least not if you expect any educating to happen. But these principals and guidance counselors and teachers know that a child who's hungry, who's being raised by elderly grandparents because of the opioid epidemic, who's sitting in her dirty clothes, who's struggling with PTSD, is going to have trouble concentrating on learning anything. I'm telling you this because I'm quite clear on what it means when I create an episode like this, which points out what schools are doing wrong. 
I know that there aren't enough hours in the day or enough bodies in any school building to solve every issue of every child. It's bad enough that we're asking schools to act as surrogate parents, lice checkers, psychiatrists, police officers, dietitians, personal chefs, and social referees, and that's before a teacher even gets to the front of the classroom. And by the way, $100 yoga pants wears, this is happening in every school district. So to the schools where I've already presented, and the ones where hopefully I will be again soon, I know how hard you work, and I know you care about these kids. God knows you didn't get into this business to be well-paid or to be appreciated. I offer you this episode as an offering to the bigger cause. Because I know that you aren't intentionally putting your students at risk, even though that may be precisely what's happening. And this is just my opinion as a complete aside. Just the idea of a pair of $100 yoga pants is nauseating, even if you can afford it. There is zero chance that the $100 pair is five times better than the $20 pair. Buying the $100 pair, even if you can afford it, just makes you a chump. Seriously. Because of coronavirus and the stay-at-home order, schools have had to adapt learning plans and deployment quickly. Very quickly, and especially for the youngest students, the issue of lack of socialization and isolation suddenly became important. And does no one else see the irony of attempting to use devices to bridge isolation? Talk about oxymoron. I'm like, my eye just started to twitch. All right, so let's slow down for a second. For one-to-one schools, that means schools that had already issued a device to each student. That means one student, one device. This transition to e-learning has been way easier. Those schools that had not already issued devices to students needed to quickly scramble to adjust to an absurd number of variables. Different homes, different Wi-Fi, who has Wi-Fi, who doesn't, what kind of device. It's been a nightmare. Any strategic deployment depends on which resources are available to you to use. So if we need to use devices to connect, whatever that means, then so be it. Here comes the crux of today's topic. So the virus hits. The schools close, we can't be physically present with each other, mental health concerns, feelings of isolation, especially for children, are a very big deal. They need to see their friends and their teachers and feel like they're part of a larger community. So, okay, Acme Elementary, how are you going to solve this problem using the tools you have access to? It's a no-brainer, right? I mean, social media and live streaming to the rescue. dun dun So as a principal of Acme Elementary, using social media, I have immediate access to the staff, to the parents, and unfortunately, most of the students. That sound you hear in the background is a tiny snowball just beginning to roll, triggering an avalanche of unintended consequences. In terms of child privacy, there are two laws, COPA, the Children's Online Privacy and Protection Act, which I mention constantly and specifically is related to the fact that children under 13 are not allowed to have any social media accounts, period. And SIPA, the Children's Internet Privacy Act, that come into play in this particular discussion. For more specific information on both topics, including links to the laws themselves, check out the liner notes. Next, we're going to hear from my friend Mandy from Neola.com, who is an expert in all things educational law. Very excited today to have with us a friend, a dear friend, a dear extra special backflip banana split friend. That's not a thing. 
Amanda Clapp is a graduate of Case Western Reserve Law School in Cleveland. She's licensed to practice law in both Florida and Ohio. Uh, she has served as inside counsel for Neola Inc., a consulting firm that provides policy services to more than 1,500 school districts in Florida, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, West Virginia, and Wisconsin since 2006. Neola's work is to be the district's partner in education excellence as they assist school districts to set direction through policies that comply, are you listening, school districts, with federal and state laws, court decisions at the federal and state level, and regulations promulgated by re regulatory agencies at both levels, and that also reflect best practices in those particular states where the school or company does business. If you're a school in West Virginia or wherever you are, the laws regarding policy may be different than they are someplace else, even in a different county for whatever reason. So Neola swoops in and says, don't be an idiot, school district. You need to put this in your policy. They're much nicer about it. That's why I don't work for them. Um, and so Mandy is one of those uh, attorneys her dad started the company. Uh, we just recently lost him, which I cannot even talk about without crying. So now that I made you cry, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you. How is it that you can talk while crying? Is that an attorney trick? I need to learn that. It is. Okay. So a few days ago, I got a um, message from a parent, uh, just absolutely aghast that now, get ready for this, uh, Mandy, because I know when you hear this, your head's going to pop, that her elementary school classmates of her child were being encouraged to take photos of themselves in various school-related things. It's Spirit Week. And so the kids were asked to do fun things. And the schools with good intentions, right? They have wonderful intentions to get these kids engaged and moving and all this stuff. The problem is that they were being encouraged to post these photos of themselves publicly on social media sites with particular hashtags, right? Like a Maple Elementary Spirit Week 2020. And the kicker is that uh, some of these kids or some of these schools were elementary schools. Now, where that may not ring a bell for people, you and I immediately go tilt, 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 right? Like stroke out seizure because kids under 13 are not meant to have social media, period, because of the COPA law, which is why we have your wonderful person Correct. on this show. And COPA is a Children's Online Privacy and Protection Act, which says no kids are allowed to have social media under the age of 13, period which schools are meant to know and do know, particularly the schools that I've spoken at already. Like they know that cause I told them. So no excuse. So I'm gonna shut up and you give me your perspective on that. There are many layers in, in this moment to sort of uncover here. My dad used to always say, it's like peeling an onion. Mm -hmm. You know, you start talking about the fact that we are looking at a period of time when everyone feels like the world is on fire. Just because we have seen some executive orders and some things from the government in Ohio and in other states that have allowed school districts and other organizations to suspend or adopt temporary rules to continue the operations of their districts or how their school boards operate during this time or allowing for certain things to continue you on in terms of the superintendent making emergency purchases or things that need to happen during this pandemic that, that are outside of the ordinary right. in terms of emergency 
rules. However, just because these things have have been proclaimed or signed and remain in full force until the emergency no longer exists, doesn't mean that the federal laws or other state laws, such as the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, which you called COPA, and then the Children's Internet Protection Act, CIPA, don't still have full authority for these students. And so that's sort of the other layer of this. You have to look at just because school districts may be having virtual board meetings doesn't mean that their acceptable use policies or their social media policies that they should have adopted go away. Right. Now, I understand wanting to make sure that your students are still engaged. And, you know, the Ohio Department of Ed is trying really hard to provide things about digital access and family engagement resources and things like that. But again, just because we are doing e-learning doesn't mean that students' privacy and safety go away. Can I give a really stupid me-esque example? Let's say you didn't have access to toilet paper. It doesn't mean you can commit a breaking and entering into your neighbor's house and steal their toilet paper. Like just because one thing's happening doesn't negate all the other laws that you would be breaking in the meantime, right? Is that a good exactly. saying? It? Okay. No, that's that's a great way of saying. It. Okay. And you know, ultimately, with the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, you have to protect these students who are 13 and under. Right. Period. Right. They should not be posting images of themselves. They should not be um, posting images on their parents' websites of themselves. Oh, well, that was way. It gets better. So one of the schools in their infinite wisdom, and I'm not, I am making fun of them, but I'm not like shaming them. I get how they got to this illogical <laughs> conclusion. <laughs> one of the schools was like, I can hear the thought process. I can hear it in my head. Okay, big mom is going to yell at us. So let's not have the kids post it. Let's have the parents post it on their social media with the hashtag. So now you've taken the grease fire and you've poured a gallon of water on it because now all you've done is given the moist guy in the basement even more information, right? Because now I've got mom's name. I know what she looks like and on and on. And trying to solve the problem by giving it to mom to post, you've only set it on fire. It's only gotten that much right. worse. Um, and and P.S., I just want to remind parents, and I know school districts know this or should know this, not every kid wants both of their parents or family members to know what school they go to. There are families that are estranged. There are domestic violence issues where, you know, dad's not supposed to know, mom's not supposed to know where the kids are because of whatever stuff has happened. And then from the parents' perspective, your kids may not want you posting about them without their permission. They don't want a video of them taken surreptitiously, of them singing in the shower that you think is adorable and cute. Don't post about them without their permission either. So can you speak to the policy piece of the fact that teachers are not supposed to ever be really communicating directly with students outside of whatever chosen things like Remind, which provides an auditing trail. One of the big pieces of um, our technology policy collection and even our social media policy that we work diligently on has been to talk specifically about how important it is to have selected means of communication between 
teachers, administrators, principals and assistant principals and coaches and all members of a district staff and how they utilize specific district resources to communicate with students. And that's the key there is you want to have it on district technology Mm -hmm. or a district email Mm -hmm. or as you said specific like a specific platform like remind exactly that gives the school an auditing trail and that they are sure that they have signed up for that and they've paid and that there is such an audited trail to make sure if a coach is sending messages to a kid in forum like that it is not likely a district approved communication about whether practice has been canceled Parents should be able to have access to those messages as well. So what our policies aim to do is require districts to either pre-approve an app and or services that a teacher intends to use or require that the teacher has these verified um, apps that also then would meet COPPA and SIPA and all of the federal regulations so that we're making sure that they are not end up getting porn through some site. Because when we were initially starting our work on the social media policy, we pulled together a lot of tech directors from various schools. And one of them was like, well, you're trying to take away the best apps that we want to use. And we said, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, the ones that are FERPA compliant and SIPA compliant don't have as good of a platform and we can't manipulate them like we'd like to. And we're like, well, but they don't meet the federal requirements that you need to have in place to protect your students' information and their data. So it's an interesting conversation, which led us Mm -hmm. to think, okay, we need to help schools put in place more stringent requirements about what apps and services and things that can be used by teachers and administrators to communicate with their kids. And and yeah, and just for, you know, the parents who are hopefully listening to to this piece, the bottom line is that your child should not be communicating directly with a teacher outside of their school issued email, email, not just any email, right. their school issued email, whichever apps the school has designated as blessed from above. Usually that's things like remind, right? Because zero that I can think of commercial consumer social media apps are compliant with anything. No Facebook, no Snapchat, no Twitter. None of these are, com- zero of these are compliant. So the minute that you see a coach someplace else, they're not paying attention to the fact that they're not allowed to use this stuff and or insist on using it anyway, not okay. That is not okay. And there are things that maybe even could be close to being compliant. Like there's an app called GroupMe, which is a sort of cordoned off texting thing, but that doesn't supply an auditing trail. Therefore, it's not going to work. The bottom line is your kids' teachers are not allowed to communicate directly with the student period. Okay. That doesn't, email's okay. That is a direct communication, right. but I'm saying in a cordoned off separate space. Right. Um, so uh, I had a kid mention this to me that, that the child had needed help with a math thing and reached out to the teacher and the teacher said, Oh, I, let me, let me just video chat you. And then the child said, no, 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 actually I figured it out. 
And then for the next, you know, week, two weeks, this teacher kept going, no, let's video. No, really, let's video. No, let's video, 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 until the kid just basically ghosted the teacher <laughs> until the yeah. teacher stopped trying. Now, was that teacher well-intentioned? Probably. I mean, we don't know for sure one way or the other. The point is that even these private sort of, you know, Zooms and video things don't really fit into this one-on-one -on -one communication. So it's very hard to, now this is one of those things where you really do need to have it, but does it live inside of Google Classroom? Could you have a policy that you never, you're never one-on-one -on -one with a student, you always have another student there, or the, how can you work the policy to make it less, ugh, you know, if it's, if it's a teacher communicating directly with a student via video chat, which has no auditing trail. So that's difficult. That's something that's a really interesting and timely question of you. I think that what's difficult is where does that fall within policy? Just even generally the protection of the health, safety, and welfare of the, the right. child. And I think that that is the ultimate standard that you have in, in any of your policies. You want to make sure that with any acceptable use and safety of the internet, you're safe and secure in chat room, social media, or other forms of direct communications. And if a teacher is direct communicating with a student via Zoom or Google Classroom, there has to be safety features enabled. And I, I, I think that it's sort of up to a lot of the districts in this sense to determine through a procedure what that is and what you recommended of is it mandated that two students are on those calls? Are they, is it mandated that they're recorded? You know, Zoom has the recording feature. And if they're not, what does that mean for the teacher? Why didn't you record that session? Why didn't you record and, and share that then back with the principal for their auditing purposes? I mean, I think there are methods that checks that schools can do during this time. And then they can say, that was for this emergency. We're not right. allowing or recommending video conferencing with students going, going forward. forward. Right. This right. isn't something that is an open forum for future use. But you're going to have your hands full because you know that's what's going to happen. Oh, that's yes. kind of what you're alluding to without saying it. You're going to have to remind all your clients' schools, right. the world is not on fire anymore, but that doesn't mean right. you just revert back to the lowest common denominator. You can't continue this. Exactly. I don't think you become a teacher to become rich, and I don't think a teacher to you know have peace of mind. But there are still a subset of humans that regardless of being teachers, have the proclivity to do harm to children. That's irrespective of the fact whether they're teachers or bakers or candlestick makers, if they have the proclivity to do damage to, to children, there's still that person. So for the person who does have malice in their heart, they're gonna use whatever tool is available to them, right? And one of my favorite quotes from Game of Thrones, and yes, I'm a huge Game of Thrones junkie, is uh, chaos is a ladder. Yeah. And so anytime there's chaos, there's opportunity to improve things vastly because you've broken it, mm -hmm. right? Now you have to rebuild it. And there's also opportunities for peeing and whatever else. So just 99% of teachers are great, but not every adult that has access to your kid has your kid's best interest at heart. Be a teensy bit suspicious. Ask questions. 
But I think with that too, that the sad and horrible thing to say in relation to that is that was the case prior to the pandemic. It's our job to remind schools to say, look, you need to roll this back that this type of communication that you allowed for during the pandemic should be cut off, that you need to ensure that you're using things like Remind that were approved in school boards. Well, here's here's one thing I'd like to see, and I can't make them do it, but you can. I would love, <laughs> she looks terrified. I would love to see, and this is something that I would love to see the Catholic Church do too. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, yeah. You want me to make the Catholic Church do something? No, if you could, it would be lovely. But no, that's not what I'm saying. And it's not even just the Catholic Church, any organization, Boy Scouts, that any organization that has had an issue with systemic right. abuse, whatever, okay? I would love to see these organizations tell their community, tell their congregation, tell their end users, tell their tell the end potential victim at Maple Elementary or Maple School District parents, you need to know that teachers and co- coaches and administrators cannot communicate with your child outside of A, B, C. I would love to hear something from the church say, hey, congregants, hey, kids, anyone associated with this organization or anywhere should never make you feel badly, should never make you feel uncomfortable. They don't do that. They don't tell the end person. So that's where you get all of this miscommunication. Why do schools not say, parents and kids, the only way a teacher should communicate with you is through remind and email period. If 98% of the boards have adopted account policies that talk about this is how we're going to communicate, Mm -hmm. a social media policy that identifies what is acceptable, what isn't, and, and lists those within their policy, is that not truly identifying? Then falls to the district administrator, superintendent, whatever CEO of their organization Right. To take specific content from that adopted policy and sort of create this memo to all, and it should go out annually. I think it does go out sometimes with your code of conduct or your student handbook at the beginning of the year. More stuff that nobody reads. I guess what I'm saying is in order to even protect the school, even as a self-preservation thing for the superintendent or this building principal right. to even as right. a static image in their e-newsletter. Don't forget, the only way is, and I know it's one more thing. All I'm saying is right. I haven't been to one, not one school in 10 years where those parents know what the policy is of how teachers can communicate with the kids. Now, frankly, that's because they didn't, re- it's there. They didn't read it. I get that. It's in the 500 pieces of paper that came home. but. You know, parents are overwhelmed as well. And so just that, don't forget, don't forget. Because I think we would avert a lot of issues. But I think we're in agreement that I think putting it somewhere that goes out frequently, like maybe even what you just said, like the uh, weekly newsletter with the, this is what's on the menu next week for school lunches. Correct. Because that they pay attention to. Good sense in protecting the school the teachers. Yeah. You just put it on there and you're done and you never have to do it again. I'm all about easy things to police because it doesn't become a problem. Okay. So can you talk about when we go back to the original topic of it's spirit week, the morning announcements and today's birthdays, 
is a scout smithing sentinel. Oh. Some very, you know, specific name. District records can be a very complex area. So I'm going to just sort of give you an overview in a sense as it relates to what we're talking about, where there's going to be directory data or directory information, which is something that should be designated in your policy. Typically, it's photo, student's name, address, telephone number, date and place of birth, major field of study, participation in officially recognized activities and sports, height and weight. But this is something that a superintendent has to provide public notice to the students and their parents each year that if someone were to request this information, that they would be able to provide this information. Okay, so wait, let's pause right there. So if I'm the volleyball coach at, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, someplace, UCLA, and I'm scouting a student at a high school, that child's height, weight, because that's germane to volleyball. Right. So, you know, I want to know if the kid's six, six feet or six three makes a difference to volleyball. And I want to know that, that official stuff. I have to request that information from the school. And then the school has to request the students okay? Well, they don't have to request the students okay. The superintendent at the beginning of each year has to identify that I am designating these things as directory information. Got it. And then if I want to, I can opt out of that. So that's why there's the notification to students and parents. So I can say, I don't want you to share that information if anyone were to ask. Now, that also goes to um, <clears throat> if the yearbook requests all of this information, well, they wouldn't be asking for your weight and all, but they might ask for your, mm -hmm. your participation in recognized activities. So they could mm -hmm. list your name with the choir or the student government or whatever you participated in when they're publishing the yearbook. So that's why we have directory data. So in the football program, when we list right, the JV right. team and the varsity team, we can have their names and maybe their position on the football team. But then there's also personally identifiable information that I cannot just get on Facebook and type in, here's Johnny Smith, 5'7", our star center for the football team. That would be providing personally identifiable information because you're combining multiple aspects of directory data or directory information that would give the guy in the basement that you like <laughs> to talk about a lot of information about a particular student that would make it easier for them to find that, that person. Let me understand this because I is confusion. A school district or a superintendent says name, obviously, date of birth, height, weight, sports, affiliation, position are all directory information, right? I've, I've established that at the beginning of the year. The parents opt in or rather don't opt out. That's cool. Whoever wants it can have it. So even though the parent has opted in and says it's cool, the school still can't release that information as a unit. Right. So I can't say Bobby Smith, tight end, 5'7", 140 pounds, or, or any combination of those as they, a unit. As a unit. 
Well, you can't make it so that it would be easy. Basically, the personally identifiable information then includes the student's name, the family members, students' parents, their address, social security number, their date of birth, and any combination identifier. to be all of them. Right. So you want to make sure that when you look at your student records policy that you should have in place, that you recognize what personally identifiable information under federal law is defined as, mm -hmm. what you have defined as directory data, and then figure out the only time that you're mandated to release any of it is to the U.S. Armed Forces. It's going back to again, federal law and making sure that as a school, you're protecting your students' data as carefully as you can. Okay. I'm not trying to give you even more headaches because you got all kinds of headaches, but like I see just an average Tuesday that school unwittingly, obviously they're proud of right. these kids. They're proud of what they've achieved. Even right. something as simple as signing day. The specific definition of personally identifiable in information states other information that alone or in combination is linked or linkable to a specific student that would allow a reasonable person in the school community who does not have personal knowledge of the relevant circumstances to identify the student with reasonable certainty. Oh, so that's it. a I'm, low bar. That's a right. low bar. It's a very low bar. But then you think about later on, the federal law allows you to identify directory data and or directory information. But this is to make available upon request. That's right. That's I, I see what you're saying. That's a separate thing. Right. So schools have to be careful about posting and publishing and even just talking in their own video about students with first and last name. Or mom's name. Thanks to Sophie's mom, Mary, who's that would be it right there. Exactly. Especially if they, they name a last name, exactly. you're kind of done. That makes sense. I feel a migraine coming on, but it makes sense. Well, Mandy, thank you so much for all of your information. I honestly, I wish I had your legal mind and your, I don't know, you're just so steady. I feel like a spaz when I'm around you because I'm just like, I, you're amazing. I wish I could just rub you off on me a little, like lotion or something. That sounded really gross. You know what I mean? <laughs> Anyway, for school districts out there, you know who you are. You know if you don't know. If you're having trouble with this, you need to use a company like Neola. And by the way, these people have not paid me. I mean, I've done work with them in the past, but this is not an advertisement. I thoroughly, truly believe in what they're doing. They've offered social media policy to their school districts for free because they believe in it. You guys are in which states? Ohio, Wisconsin, Indiana, West Virginia? Florida. Florida. I'm missing one. Ohio, Michigan. As any good Ohioan would forget Michigan. Okay. So those are the states. If you are in any school district in any of those states and you're not using Neola, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know who you think you're kidding. I don't know if you're using a, a rival company. I don't even know what the rival companies are, but clearly they suck. If you guys could see the face Mandy just made. I don't even know who the competitors are. Neola is the best company for policy. I've seen their work in action. They actually truly care, like for real care, that their schools are doing the right thing and helping children and protecting children. They really truly believe that. It's not just BS. So call Neola. 
It's N-E-O-L-A.com. Any last thing, Mandy, you want to say? Um, it just goes exactly to what big mama Jesse was just saying <laughs> in that we would love to be your partner in education excellence and help you be able to put policy on the front burner, but also do it in a way that allows you to put children first, which we know is your top priority. You? For sure. Thank you. All right, my sweet. Thank you for your time. Of course. Happy to do it. I appreciate you, Karen. All right. Bye, Bye love. Bye. Well, that's our show for today. Don't forget to tune in for next week's episode, episode six, which is part two of this same topic. For all the sources used in this episode, including links to the COPA and SIPA laws, check out the liner notes. If you're new to podcasts, liner notes just mean the description for this episode in your podcast player. If you scroll down, you'll find all the references used in this episode. If you're already a member of Big Mama's House Fan Club, don't forget to grab the download for this episode, which includes a cheat sheet, additional reading, and checklists for parents and schools. Until next time, remember, parenting is hard. Be kind to yourself. This has been a Big Mama's House production, hosted by Jesse Weinberger. The outro music was written and mastered by Caleb Weinberger.